We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. So welcome back, listeners, and welcome back, Courtney. Welcome back, Craig. Uh, so this, this was our first episode recorded in 2021. Finally, we yeah. got there. It's taken us a while, but we're, we're back in it, ready to record. It's yeah. good. It's been a bit of a slow start to the year, but um, we do have some good ones lined up so we do yeah there's, there's lots of uh, really cool and interesting guests that we have yeah. lined up ready to go so today we sat down at in uh, margaret doherty's house mm, yeah and had a good chat dogs around which was really cute yeah yeah and she's from an organization called mental health matters too yeah yeah uh, and um she has a lot of insights about uh drug and alcohol use and and prisons and yeah and mental the health issues. Lack of things that we are doing and yeah. all the possibilities that are out there for yeah. us to do to help. Yeah. So we we covered a lot of ground. It is a pretty uh, long conversation. It is. Um, but hopefully informative and interesting to, to people. Yeah, so have a listen. It's a yeah really great conversation um, and it will be on right now. Yep. We'll speak to you after. <laughs> Listeners out there, yeah, <laughs> soon to be thousands, hopefully. <laughs> uh, so, Margaret, thanks very much for hosting us and joining us on the podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah no, we're we're in the lovely surrounds of the Helena Valley. Oh, it is nice, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good drive out, to be honest. Yeah, I thought there'd be more traffic, and it's good. No, it's very, very good. Yeah, very good. Um, so yeah, so do you just want to give us a bit of background about yourself, Margaret? What, what, who you are, what you're doing? Sure, thanks. Um, and thanks for the opportunity to come on today. Um, yeah. As an Irish person, the joy of just chatting and telling story and sharing story <laughs> is quite wonderful. So thanks for that. So I'm heavily involved in the mental health, where mental health meets drug and alcohol often, you know, slides into criminal justice. So that's kind of the space I inhabit um, and came into that through family experience. Um, and also then have stayed in there really in a systemic advocacy way. So uh, as you can tell from the accent, <laughs> as I mentioned, um, I emigrated from Ireland about 30 years ago. Um, and, and that's important in terms of the content, you know, that we'll probably cover because that actually meant that there wasn't any of the usual informal networks of support available. Mm. So that means mm. people are really reliant on services to respond kind of well and quickly. Um, I worked, when I came over, you know, because I'd done my study as very little to do with what I'm currently doing, because I actually had a very different career uh, trajectory mapped, such as it was. And I, my primary degree was in economics in German. Yeah, mm. that's um, very different. <laughs> it is really different. And my intention, my naive intention was that um, at that stage, Ireland was joining the European Union mm. and I would go off and be somewhat of a high flyer, no doubt, in Brussels, mm -hmm. right? which was extremely naive and took no account of what life brings. Um, then I did, um, so, so, you know, from there, then I ended up um, having my son, um, which at that stage in Ireland, as a, uh, what the term was, as an unmarried mother, um, was not the most popular um, choice, okay. yep. um, but it was my choice. And, um, and I, it's a choice I'm very, very happy to have stood beside, you know, all this time. 
But that actually then changed the career trajectory just a little bit. So I went and did a second degree in business and uh, postgrad in education. Uh, so yeah, so that was kind of how my life was looking. And then uh, met um, someone from over this part of the world and came over here. And that's the, that's the short version of that <laughs> quite juicy story. Yeah. Um, when I came here, because of my kind of um, background in education as well, I, again, it's my, you know, career trajectory has been quite interesting because it's often been just where opportunities have arisen mm. rather than mm -hmm. any grand plan. Um, and so they, you know, the Department of Education, as it was at the time, was looking for someone to set up programs to work with young people. The definition at that time was young people at risk and um, people who were kind of dropping out of school were at real danger of not being able to engage well in education employment and, you know, have, you know, their life prospects kind of limited as a result of that to some degree. So, um, so I started to do that, set up a program. Again, my naivety was my blessing. Because I, I actually didn't know a lot about the system here because I hadn't been educated here. And I think there is something about that I will just say is that sometimes what you don't know is actually really helpful well, because you don't like get a, stopped. Yeah, it's like a different perspective. Everyone's kind of in their yeah. own mind and suddenly they've got someone going, hang on, like this doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. 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 And why are you doing it like that? You know, yeah. and what sort of outcomes are you getting? And is, it, is what you're doing matching the outcomes that you want? Totally, mm. yeah. Mm. So, so again, I think my naivety was a bit of a blessing in there and um, so I went on to set up a really successful program that's still running called the Fremantle Fast Track program which is a, a post compulsory program that just creates a pathway for people to come back into education which and I know now there are many more pathways available which is fantastic but at that time it was really limited mm -hmm. so um, so yeah and that you know <laughs> that was a really really interesting exercise and in also giving people voice and giving people options and making sure that they were fit for purpose options. Mm -hmm. So I then, um, long story, so I did that for a while, then I went on and coordinated a small student-centered school. And again, that was based on principles of empowerment and inclusion and ensuring that the students actually had very meaningful um, opportunity to input to the decision-making, including staff recruitment. You know, this was, oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Cool. We had a parliament once a week where everyone sat around and made decisions um, about how to manage certain circumstances, you know, and um, the curriculum. And it was, you know, it was it met all the necessary requirements of the education department so that people could get their year 10 or their year 12. We offered tea at that point as well. So that was, again, a really interesting experience and kind of being at the side of the system um, and being able to work with a group of people for whom the system hadn't really worked. And it's only, of course, in looking back that you see that some, sometimes there are just some, some trends and themes. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> none of the, again, this was not, you know, a grand career plan. So when I look back at some of my career, there seems to be that theme of working with people kind of on the edge. Yeah. And, you know, um, and working to ensure that that they have a meaningful voice not a tokenistic voice in mm. the decisions that affect them in their life which you know i think as a citizen is what really what we all want mm. so then i moved so long story short i then started my own business got really tired of working for other people yep. started my own business because again i had a background in business and um really enjoyed and that was really a heavily involved in coaching people as well and so again finding out what motivates someone and working with them to to you know 
realize their life goals. Then I, this is the fast track story here. (laughs) 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 Then in the midst of all of that, I got married, um, which was, you know, which was not something I was expecting to do, frankly, Mm -hmm. and um, which was and continues to be very joyous. Mm the, I then went into uh, community corrections um, in the community-based area of corrective services. So worked um, at, and the language that was used at the time was case management and supervision. I don't know if the language has changed significantly since then. But it was really um, working with people who had been placed on uh, community court, you know, sentencing options mm-hmm. and... Um, ensuring that you know they had what they needed as far as is possible to try and get through those orders successfully, and also to make sure that the um, court order, you know, we were there to make sure the court order was actually um, pursued faithfully. So that was really interesting, and of course that brought me in touch with people whom I wouldn't have met, um, and unfortunately it brought me in touch with a lot of Aboriginal people because. You know, we know that Aboriginal people are overrepresented in our criminal justice system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I then was really aware that in doing that, so part, part of my role, a further role I took on in there was actually writing reports. So these were the pre-sentence and, and parole assessment reports. And, and again, really, and I'm sure this is not um, how the department would view it, but really <laughs> hearing, you know, people's story and what brought them to mm. where they were and mm. the privilege um, of of being having some real truths shared mm-hmm. um, was never lost on me um, and trying to link that in with the bureaucratic requirements of you know what was needed for that um, magistrate or judge in a very busy courtroom to have access to the information here she needed to um, make the sentencing decision so, and that brought me into obviously visiting prisons and going into the remand centres to meet people um, who were who were going to be sentenced. So, what came to what came to my understanding really quickly, as it does, I think, with anyone who works in in that system, is that drug and alcohol played a really major part in many people being in the system, as did other issues like uh, systemic racism, poverty, yeah. um, disadvantage. But drug and alcohol, I thought. You know, I could do something about that. Maybe yeah. I could go upstream and maybe just try and work with people so they don't actually end up in this in mm-hmm. the criminal justice system. <laughs> Again, my naivety. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there is a definite Eagles. theme. And there yeah. is a yeah, just change the world. Yeah. yeah. Um, so then um, around that time, so I went, I trained, did a court, you know, became a counsellor in the and drug alcohol and other drug counsellor, and then with perfect timing those issues started to emerge in my own family and uh and so that brought me really catapulted me into founding mental health matters too in 2010 and then becoming more and more and more aligned in this space um of mental health plus drug and alcohol plus Mm. criminal justice because that started to mirror um our family experiences um and that was 11 years ago now um which i feel has gone past in the blink of an eye, <laughs> frankly. Um, yeah. My change the world um, outcome hasn't yet quite been realised, <laughs> yep. uh, but we're getting there. And so I sit now, I'm really privileged to sit on a number of strategic committees. I love working strategically. I love being able to look across the landscape and see what facilitators or barriers might be in place and do something about strengthening the facilitators and trying to get rid of the barriers. And I also think it's critically important and I, you know, 
it might sound a bit odd to say it, but I do feel privileged for my grassroots connections mm-hmm. um, because I actually see the real, the reality of what happens on the ground versus the lofty ideals of what's often written in policy and uh, yep. in another documents at that level mm. okay very interesting backstory there yeah uh, that, was, that was the short that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we could probably oh boy. Do, a, do an episode just there, on there's that there's so many yeah little things that you could just pull out now, we're, we're so gonna exciting. we're gonna get into mental health matters too sure. in a little bit more detail yeah. in, in a minute um first thing i wanted to ask you was you mentioned that you're on uh, some committees and whatnot are they all in the government sector or is there a mix of ngo and government or they're nearly all in the government sector actually so i'm uh, the chairperson of the Mental Health Advisory Council, and it's an independent council which is tasked with providing advice to the Mental Health Commissioner um, as distinct from the Minister. Mm-hmm. And that is made up of a really diverse group of people, and it is, a, it is an enormous privilege to be chairing that committee and to be bringing together those um, advices to the Commissioner. Mm-hmm. And that some of that work is available, um, some of that advice is available through the Mental Health Commission webpage on the Mental Health Advisory Council, the minutes of our meetings. I'm a big fan of transparency, mm-hmm. um, and uh, as is the Commissioner. <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. and so those, uh, that information is on there. I also sit on the Sustainable Health Review Independent Oversight Committee, um, which again is the Sustainable Health Review, is a massive project around mm. all of health yep. and transforming. It's a transforming project. Um, so I think part of ev- everyone's goal, I think, who's involved with it, is keeping the transformational lens on the work mm. as distinct from just the translating mm. change lens. Mm-hmm. And that's yep. not, you know, that that's a that's a big task um but mm. people you know people are up for it yeah. and um and there will of course be pockets of opposition and just status quo and so it's about working you know how do you, how do you transform a system that's as big as as health mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um so that's again you know looking at it from that kind of helicopter very 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 lucky to be doing that and you know be, and working in those systems and in those roles with really passionate public servants, mm. people, you know, I think sometimes we, I do think public servants take a bit of a bashing at times. Yeah, okay, with the stereotypes. Yeah, yeah, there are some stereotypes that we can easily fall into. Yeah. And, um, and there are probably some individuals in there who absolutely <laughs> reinforce the stereotype. <laughs> but um, certainly the people I meet are, are really into the public service side of that they're very clear about what's involved there and um Mm -hmm. and i you know i happened the person to whom i'm married happens to be a long-term public servant and that no no way influences what i'm saying but i've also (laughs) seen what you know the cost of that too um the cost of that incredible contribution so you know yes i do think that it's really important that we do continue to remember that there are people who are working very hard in those systems to make yeah. those systems work and yeah. it's a big big community of people all working together as well as that's not right. just one person yeah yeah, yeah. Absolutely. and there's a lot of people mm. in public service and our last guest taryn that we were talking about mm. um is you know very successful and mm. well respected public servant and hearing him talk about his motivation for mm. public service was really interesting but a lot of these people are really well trained and credentialed and have the choice. They could go and Absolutely. probably take a much bigger paycheck in the in the private sector, but yeah. they're choosing to yeah. to try and better society. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, through the government. Mm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it has to be acknowledged. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, now, mental health matters too. I guess loosely, you talk about it being a grassroots network, but loosely, I, you would maybe describe it as an advocacy 
has a big advocacy <laughs> role. <laughs> it's really interesting when I'm asked to do this because I find mm. myself using language that I would never have used, we mm. would never have known mm-hmm. 11 years ago. And the reason I say that is sometimes when we hear about things, they are parceled in a particular way, you know, because we, we, we have to find language around them or find succinct ways of describing them. Mm. But at the start, or, you know, at the start, we, I started Mental Health Matters too. you know, people say you start from either inspiration or desperation. It was desperation. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, again, <laughs> no grand plan. It was you know? needed. It, it was, was needed. needed. And so. it's like, somebody's mm. got to do something. Yeah. Mm. And, and then you look around and you go, okay, well, what could I do? You yeah. know, and I think that is, that is a really important question for people to answer. You know, what is it that I can do or am I waiting for someone else to do something? Mm. And I certainly didn't start Mental Health Matters 2 with any idea of what might be involved. Um, so, and, and I think, again, naivety can be useful yeah. because it can be really easy when you do you know, a project plan to look at all the barriers mm. um, and focus on those as a human being mm. rather than look at what needs to be done and try and find ways to do that. So we would describe it now as a, you know, it's a grassroots group that is um, focused on systemic advocacy. Mm-hmm. Again, I didn't even know the word <laughs> systemic advocacy and what yeah. that really meant. Yeah. I just thought peop- something's happening here. Mm-hmm. That needs to be changed because people are getting really poor outcomes. Yeah. So what was the what was the original idea? So people have poor outcomes. What can I do? What was the answer to that question originally yeah. for you? Well, the answer to the question was we need to find the answer. Yeah. Yeah. So um, mm-hmm. so it came about from you know our family ended up in a situation where someone had fallen through all the, you know into the chasms, not you know the Grand Canyons. Yeah. And I'm like, if this can happen in our family where we're white, we're middle class, I'm tertiary educated, I'm absolutely not concerned about taking on systems, I'm assertive in communicating with individuals and still this has happened Mm. this i must be sitting on the pin of the iceberg here Mm. and so i wrote a letter to the west australian never having done so before (laughs) it's always like a it's a thing doing that for the first time (laughs) i'm thinking oh please let them not say my name because you know there's that whole well there's the whole confidentiality about um you know yeah. maintaining privacy for the person involved yeah, that's right. and for the family. And there's also shame, there's mm. shame and yeah. stigma. There's right? a lot of stigma. Let's yeah. be clear, you know. Yeah. So I had said, you know, I had seen, uh, you know, like my father was, I'm an avid news re- you know, newspaper reader. I still love the feel of newspaper. So, mm-hmm. um, and I had seen that people had put in letters with name and address supplied. So kind of in big letters, like, can you, pl- if you do print this, you know, can you please print it? And, you know, but here's my contact teachers and they did print it much to my surprise Mm. because I was responding to cuts um, that had been announced you know three percent cuts and I'm like how can you cut this Mm. like we don't have enough services as it is Mm. I don't understand the inner workings of this but you know I do have a business background something's not quite adding up here and so and in the bottom (laughs) of the letter in the last paragraph I naively there is a definite theme in this podcast (laughs) Um, naively said, you know, if, if other people want to figure out what we could do about this, then get in touch. Yeah. Now, that was a real, that was a real ask, given I hadn't even put a name or address on the letter. But lo and behold, all these letters started flowing back, oh, wow. going, mm. my goodness, you know, you've described, you know, the situation in our family. Um, I really want to do something about it. Or my goodness, I've been trying to do something about it for 15 mm. years or 20 years and things haven't changed. So... That culminated in um, just a, a few of us 
probably about five of us getting together um, in the week of Christmas, you know, what impeccable <laughs> timing, yeah. impeccable time. And, um, and again, where are we going to meet? You know, you can't meet in a busy cafe to talk about this stuff. It's mm. just too difficult. So I hired, you know, a room somewhere, had to find out where you could hire a room, mm-hmm. hired the room, met there. And then, you know, we decided that in February, um, you know, we'd ha- kind of think, get Christmas over because that's always a tricky time. Um, or often a tricky time in this space. And so we, um, you know, decided to hold a group meeting in February. And that's, I hired a kind of a, a it was a hall on, you know, the side of an oval. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A cheap local authority, but, you know, totally yeah. okay so place. 15 bucks yeah. That's hours. the one. Yeah. That's <laughs> the one, yeah. yeah. Um, because remember, this wasn't a funded enterprise. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's still not a funded enterprise, by the mm-hmm. way. And, um and so people came and we just put, we didn't put ads in the paper because we didn't know what to expect. So we kind of set it out through our own networks and, and talked to people and lo and behold, like 40 people turned up. Oh, wow. and, um, and I will always be grateful to a person called Anne White, um, who at that time was the executive director of the WA Association for Mental Health, which mm-hmm. is the peak body for non-government organizations. Again, knew none of this language, but yeah. got yeah. on the phone book. And, and I rang and I said, we need someone to come and just tell us what the mental health system looks like because we don't we're all not getting what we need but we Mm -hmm. don't really understand the landscape we don't have any sort of a map and you know a very short notice to a group of people she didn't know she came and she just said well you know and it was really basic and that's what was needed you know if you're talking about medicare that's a federal issue if you're talking about something else that's a state issue and started to give us some sort of a map to think about well where do we need to influence um, in order to get the change that we want. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, I was delivering some training on advocacy yesterday and I was saying that is still the key question. You know, mm-hmm. well, where is my point? A- am I talking to the right person about the right thing? Because I think we can often talk to the wrong person who will listen often, you know, respectfully yeah. and then say, oh, actually... And so you end up mm. telling the story really often, which can be quite distressing and frankly, just a bit exhausting. Yeah. And so great, you may have educated that person if they're open to being educated, but it has, hasn't actually advanced your... Yeah. There. And they might right. not be a decision maker. Or That's exactly have the right. power to yeah. do anything. They may yeah. feel okay. enormously empathic with you and they may lead you down another, you know, kind of uh, to, to someone else. But mm-hmm. um, it can be a... Yeah, so finding that map for me... Mm-hmm was just really important so i you know i always appreciate Anne and doing that at um very short notice and with very good will and so there then we thought well what are we doing now you know um and we just thought well we'll just get a steering group um and again Anne gave us some advice because obviously as executive director of a peak body she knows lots of different organizations and what they look like and she said you know keep it fairly flexible don't have a board, you know, you're too, you're too young to have yeah. a board, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, have a steering group. And that's actually the configuration that we've stayed with till now. Mm. Um, I then, in trying to find out the best way to move forward, um, spoke to lots and lots of people, some of whom attended on that night and who were at that point um, either themselves had, you know, their own experiences of navigating a system which frankly hadn't contributed to their mental health yeah and um which was the irony was not lost on us mm-hmm. and um the uh family members some of whom were you know in their 70s at that point they would now be in their 80s and were really really concerned about what was going to happen to the people 
you know, that they cared for and about when, when they were no longer there. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of conversations that, you know, happened in the disability space years and years ago. And I thought, we, you know, we must be able to learn something from this. So one of the key um, lessons from a number of those conversations that people very generously shared um, was that it was really important to keep a focus on advocacy. Yeah. And try to avoid getting into service provision at that stage mm-hmm. um, because what, and I know this is not true for all service providers, but it can be a tension when you are taking, you know, government dollars for, I'm going to get slated from this, <laughs> a whole lot of people I know, right? <laughs> but, you know, it, it can be a tension. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you have to kind of reduce your advocacy voice by a few decibels mm-hmm. and then that you lose the age. Yeah. And because we weren't interested in providing services, we were actually interested in, in working with people who did provide services to expand their service offering, mm-hmm. to make it more fit for purpose for yeah. the group of people that we were um you know, having our families and our friends. Yeah, networks. representing basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we have absolutely no, you know, we had no interest in providing services. And so, yeah, so we kind of started with that. We had a steering group um, and then we started. And one of the things we really wanted to avoid was to get knee deep in bureaucracy. <laughs> Fair enough. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, that was the system where we seemed to be facing where we thought, well, it wouldn't make much sense to replicate that. Yeah. And so we've, and we've managed to do that over the last 11 years. We've stayed fairly nimble. We have um, a list, of, a set of values that we work to, and we screen all our work through those values. So they are, you know, to be hopeful, to be informed, to be resolute. Um, and, the, you know, one is to be, uh, to be just, to be fair, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that people remember most is to be gracious. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we've had to have conversations with, in our community about what those mean as well. So, you know, and we deliberately avoided the use of the word respect. That's where gracious came from because Mm -hmm. we had all been involved in situations where as we sat at the reception and looked at the mission statement behind the reception desk that talked about treating customers as a high priority and our clients or whatever the language that was used in that service was, we were sitting there feeling very <laughs> pretty yeah. unwelcome and disrespected. Yeah. So we thought mm. we're, that's an overused word. Mm. So gracious for us is about, um, and, and it created a bit of confusion within our own community. I remember one um, new uh, person who'd come in and she was kind of, you know, learning. She was on a committee with us and, and there was some mentoring involved. And she came to me utterly frustrated one day and said, I can't be nice anymore. And I said, whoever asked you to be nice? (laughs) She went, that gracious thing trips me up. Uh, And I'm like, aha, no, 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 no. That is not what, no. So then we realized, so we've written up, you know, just like for anyone coming into any of those roles, this is what it means. Mm -hmm. So this is about playing the issue, not the person. Yeah. Okay. And it's about respecting the role of building and maintaining relationships in advocacy and transformation. Yep. Um, it's not about creating us and them silos. It may sound like that sometimes to people who may not share my opinion, and that's fine. Um, but it's absolutely not about saying those people over there who are doing the bad thing and us, we here who have all the solutions. Yep. It's about working together, mm-hmm. and uh, but, but doing so in a really clear, honest way. Yeah. Yep. Mm. 
So I first came across your organisation, I guess you'd call it. Is it well, we second? actually, as of two weeks ago, we are now an organisation. Yeah. Oh, nice. yeah, we've taken well a big done. step. So we had a 10th birthday last year and like many milestone birthdays yeah. and it just happened during COVID. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, we took time to reflect and so mm-hmm. we, we have actually now incorporated um, as of two weeks ago. Okay. Mm. So I think it might have been around 2015 or 2016. I think you guys had co-convened a, a seminar um, session that lasted a whole day down in Bentley with the Richmond Fellowship. That's right, yeah, And yeah, there was yeah. a brilliant yeah, yeah, um, yeah. lady who kind of was the keynote speaker. Uh, Rachel she, Perkins? Yes, Perhaps, Rachel Perkins yeah, from yeah. the UK. Yes, yeah. Um, she really opened my eyes to consumer involvement because she was a consumer and a clinician, a mm-hmm. mental health consumer and a mental health clinician. And mm-hmm. she told a couple of like fascinating stories about being treated like a, I guess, a, an object in the room when mm-hmm. her clinician oh, was having a chat yeah. with... One of the nurses, or something, mm. just to verify whether or not she was telling the truth about what she'd done that morning, or yeah. yeah. Yes. And she's now in charge of tens of millions of pounds a year in funding, isn't she? Yeah. In the NHS, she's fantastic, yeah, and okay. she's very, very down to earth. Mm. Yeah. yeah, she's very. Mm. Yeah, really, really interesting. Um, so, I, I guess I'd like to dig into a little bit more about some of the examples of some of the work that you guys have been involved with, sure. um, because you mentioned systemic advoca- advocacy before. Uh, which we should probably distinguish from the other types of advocacy, mm. which are more individual level. So mm. rather than advocating for change within a system, you're advocating to help a person who's trying to navigate the system. Now, do you guys ever get involved in that type of thing? So I often, too often, unfortunately, have people who call me out of the blue. And um, I did ask one person, where did you get my phone number from? And she said, <laughs> oh, someone at the back of the court gave it to me. And I'm oh. still kind of thinking, okay, well, that's interesting. Mm. And, you know, yeah. so... So it, so it's fair to say that be, you know by the time someone gets that phone number, they've tried everything else, um, you know because if they got what they needed, they wouldn't be coming or mm-hmm. direction. Yeah. Um, so so I do hear lots of very heartbreaking um, and tragic um, situations, and people don't tend to come to me when everything's flowing beautifully. Mm-hmm. So it has to be said that you know there is a bias in the stories that I'm hearing. Yeah. Right. And um, so, but we don't have the resources um, to be able to walk alongside those people on their journeys. But what we can do is offer that map, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, so we now have a pretty good understanding of the system and mm-hmm. where their entry points might be and which ones just to not bother wasting any time with, okay. you know, mm-hmm. because actually navigating the system is utterly exhausting mm-hmm. and confusing, particularly at the very start when you're, and, and when I say the system, <laughs> I should clean up my own language here. I'm speaking of something as though it were worked as a system. Yeah. So no, no, you know, I often think of it as, you know, those lagoons where you have little desert islands with one <laughs> yeah. palm tree and the shark infested waters. Yeah. And that may sound awful, but it's, they're fine if you've got a boat, Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and they're actually quite lovely if you want a bit of peace. Mm. But if you're trying to find the right island to land on and you're kind of swimming through those shark infested waters, it is not a pleasant experience yeah. and there could be storms and, you know, we could yeah. continue that analogy way out. But, yeah. you know, mm. that's often what it feels like. And, and some really good work happening on some of those islands, but 
my, how do you get there? Yeah. No one's given you the map when you left the harbour. It's so more like a jungle than a, than a network. It can yeah. feel like that. And yeah. so, of course, in our world, we're not just dealing with the mental health system. We're dealing with the health system, the justice system, both community-based and corrections, as in prisons and detention centres. And we're often dealing with the drug and alcohol system as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, and each of those systems has its own way of working, has its own language, the same word, recovery, can mean a different thing <laughs> across or any of those re- systems. Rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Rehabilitation. Yeah. So, you know, so you, so, you know, I'm really proud to say that a lot of the folk in our community are very skilled navigators now. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, there is an expertise that is learned from having to, um, to navigate those systems while you're in the middle of um, situations that are less than ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that expertise is expertise it is lived expertise it's living expertise for most of us Mm -hmm. and so it is equal in its value to learned expertise and my experience is that when you bring the two together (laughs) Mm. you actually get the best outcomes yeah Yeah. Mm. and learn from each other so i'm sure i haven't answered your question okay so but what we what have we done okay so what have we done (laughs) i could segue back now using that very long detour to say that probably at the core of everything that we've done is to bring lived experience and living experience, um, the lens of that to whatever we do. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways in which we do that, we run a bi-monthly Families for Families WA group that happens now online through Zoom. There's a, a, a community of people there and there's, you know, there's no screening, there's no assessments. It's just make a contact, we'll give you the link. And we'll manage it from there. And I'm really grateful and appreciative to say that in 11 years, you know, we, we've had a couple of hiccups, of course, but we haven't had any majors. People get so risk averse in this space that it becomes a barrier to being able to engage. Mm-hmm. And we certain, one of the reasons we set it up at that really low threshold, again, I'm using service language here, mm-hmm. right, um, was because we know that by the time families get to us, um, they have gone through, they've jumped many, many hoops of, you know, with raging flames yeah. as well. Mm. So the last thing we want to do is say, oh, you can come to us, but let us just give you this assessment first, right? Mm-hmm. So they'll figure out, you know, yeah. quickly if it's for them, we'll figure out if it's for them. We have a conversation that's quite casual. And sometimes I think what people forget in assessment is it's a two-way process. You know, they're checking mm. us out to see if we're safe and if we know our stuff and if yep. we're worthy of their very scarce energy at that stage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. You know, and we're checking out because... Frankly, if it were a mum or a dad ringing me who has a 15-year-old who started to smoke marijuana, or I'd be like, no, don't come to us, you know, mm. because we're, we're, that wouldn't be useful to you. No. <laughs> You'd be hearing stories that would probably frighten the heart out of you, you know. Um, Possibly unnecessarily. And so, yeah. Absolutely. Mm. So, you know, so there's that slight kind of conversational, just making sure it's in the right space. But, you know, those folks don't tend to end up with us. So we run that bi-monthly. That's mm-hmm. been done for 10 years now. Um, we run that now in conjunction with Serenian House Drug and Alcohol Agency. And we've been absolutely blessed to have the same specialist co-occurring mental health and alcohol and other drug practitioner um, with us for that period of time. So that's, mm-hmm. that's like rare, you mm-hmm. know, in service land. Uh, so are you able to share their name? Yeah, Charles, yeah. Charles Van Wick. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Fantastic. And he's a, his background is, I'm speaking for him now, his background is in psychiatric social work, trained in the UK. Mm-hmm. So really understands that correlation between um, mental health and drug and alcohol. And what that has done for us is, because again, remembering that we, 
you know, weren't interested in service provision. But we did know that people often needed extra support when they finished the, a conversation with us, is that gave us a streamline and a fast track mm. to someone who we absolutely trust, um, knows their stuff, and will will hold that person safely. And then, you know, he helps them navigate the next landscape, you know, so... Yeah. Um, so there's a lot, there's an awful lot to be said in this space for trusted navigators, mm. particularly when we consider the issue of trauma and the yeah. trauma that's present for individuals as well as in families. Yeah. So that's, sorry, Courtney, no, go no, 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 you continue. Yeah. <laughs> so then we've done a lot of advocacy. Again, mm. wouldn't have called it that. The first thing we did, and I have, I still have visions of us sitting because we had nowhere to, to meet, you know. And I live a bit, a little bit out in the sticks, so it's not the ideal place. It's not a central location. But we had a very kind person who offered us the back of a church um, in the northern suburbs. And I have um, absolute memories of sitting in the back of this very cold. The wind was howling outside mm -hmm. in July. Yep. And we had someone with you know, a portable whiteboard doing a strategic plan with a group of us. And we were in coats and scarves and gloves, pretty <laughs> much. And from that strategic plan, you know, because because there was a lot that people wanted to do. Because, mm. of course, when you create that space and say, what can we do? People go, oh, let me give you an idea. And we, we need something that's manageable. And so what we thought was if we could just stop people falling into prison, you know, mm. because, you know, there was that and continues to be the prevailing myth. Now that they're in the criminal justice system, they will get the help they need. Right. Right. <laughs> and we all know is a um, yeah, my an interesting idea. <laughs> people who've been to prison, so yeah, yeah I can appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, and it's, yeah, you have the evidence for it. Yeah, yeah. And, and exactly, and, yeah. and it's frightening that mm. we still think that. And, mm. um, and of course, what we want to do is have really good services in prison, but we don't want people to have to wait to go there to get them. So, um, so we thought, right, if we could just, you know, I, having had a bit of a background in community-based corrections as well, knew that there were diversion opportunities for people in the family violence area, um, in drug and alcohol, you know, drug court and mm -hmm. other uh, diversion Star programs. Yeah. Star Court was the, what we started with. Okay. Uh, we didn't had nothing to do with the name. Okay. Yeah. Um, but we said if we could just have a diversion program for people with mental distress or mm -hmm. mental ill health or mental illness, because the language changes a lot. Yep. And so, again, we had not quite sure where to start. And as it turned out, we had a wonderful um, ally in a, uh, she was the principal solicitor of the Mental Health Law Centre at that stage. Her name is Sandy Bolter. She said, oh, you know, there's a Law Reform Commission report that was written about that a few years ago. We didn't know who the Law Reform Commission were. Okay, so again, having allies in the space and asking naive questions is really important. And so lo and behold, there was Project 96 um, that um, had looked at court diversion options and one of them had, you know, was for mental distress. We're like, well, so what's happened? Like, who's working on this? Ta-da! <laughs> Tabled no and one. left. Yeah. And we were Someone horrified. Someone had the idea and yeah. was like, all right, I've had the idea. Moving and on. Yeah, and, mm. and I think everyone agreed that it was a good idea, yeah. but no mm. one had actually taken it up. Right. And so, so we kind of became the you know the wind beneath the wings yeah. mm -hmm. the wind beneath the report the hot air someone would say <laughs> beneath the report because we just we and we got physical copy we went mm. to the office and said you know that report you wouldn't happen to have a few copies they're like yes here mm -hmm. have some mm. so we brought that to every forum 
everywhere we went and said, what about this? Why aren't you doing this? All mm-hmm. the work's been, not all the works, but you know, everyone agrees it's a good idea. Yeah. And so that taught me a lot about finding out what's already, what other people are already mm. working on, which is why we like to work really closely with researchers and, you know, find and know what reports are out there yeah. because they give us authorities for the advocacy we do. And then we bring our lived experience to mm-hmm. that and kind of, you know, that's that mix of learned and lived experience. Mm. And so um, two years later, so I have to say there was a bit of very useful timing here as well. So we, Mental Health Matters 2 started in February 2010 and in March 2010, the Mental Health Commission opened its doors for the first time in WA. Yeah. So it had been part of the health department and was now being carved out as a separate um government department and so they were opening their doors to hear from people who were using the system we were like we were standing at Mm. the door (laughs) knocking ready to come in going oh and by the way have you seen this report yeah Yeah. you're painting the door yeah Yeah. absolutely so you know so timing in advocacy is often just yeah you know fortunate stuff but you know i think i i think it may have been oprah who's purported to have said you know luck is when preparation meets opportunity Mm -hmm. so we were prepared to do something either the opportunity arose and then people say gosh you were really lucky and it's like "Mm." been preparing Mm. for the potential (laughs) opportunity for a while you just didn't know what that opportunity was going to be exactly exactly so i'm delighted to say that um so the start court began um i continue to be involved with it i then applied through an independent process um to become the family care rep on the operational committee and i'm still on there and um have seen you know it morph and change as any pilot project does and it has gone you know through pilot project um funding fr- since then until a few days ago when mm-hmm. it's now have it now has got recurrent funding okay which is absolutely fantastic because yeah. mm. for me as an advocate you know that a says advocacy can be a marathon you know and you have to chunk it down otherwise you just get tired and burnt out mm. um but the embedded of that in the system for me is the you know the bit that you crack open the bottle of champagne for yeah. because it's now in the system it's independent it's of any continuous. entity and it will continue to be mm. there for people who need it yeah, and am awesome. i right in thinking that uh is magistrate felicity zemphus still involved in it no she has no. just finished okay. she has actually just finished a couple of um just last month actually okay and so now it's magistrate longdon right and um you know just watching how and it's a great example when you know for anyone looking at how to bring you know we talk a lot about working collaboratively in government and you know so you're bringing together some fairly big clunky parts of government you Mm. know as in the attorney general's Mm. area you know courts justice health not natural bedfellows So I think yeah. there's really good learnings and the program mm-hmm. gets great outcomes, you know, mm-hmm. and it um, changes people's lives, um, which if you've ever been at, you know, they have graduations in the court um, where people are, you know, formally acknowledged with a certificate and the magistrate comes down from the bench to say, well done, you've completed the project. And, you know, some I get tingles just even mm-hmm. thinking about this because this this is what we want to be putting our money in. as a taxpayer. That's where yeah. I want my money to go. Yep. And it's not about people getting off lightly because that is a, a goal-focused program that people have to follow. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there are some exclusions. You know, if you're going to plead not guilty, then you can't go down that road mm-hmm. because information might be shared in the program that might not be helpful. Yep. So there needs to be a, a guilty plea. Mm-hmm. Um, but... 
you know, I, I just think that's where I want my taxpayers' money invested yeah. in diversion and keeping people out of prison. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly when you consider that at the moment we have a 30% remand rate in WA. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, like, in summary, what your group kind of does, tell me if I'm wrong, um, it's almost a mediator. So you've got the people who are living it, you've got the people in government and it's it's bring and other companies and non-profits and all this kind of thing and you're bringing them together on both sides so you're allowing the people that are living through it and need the help to get the help that they need but you're also allowing the non-for-profits and all these services to experience what these people are going through so then they can actually target those services appropriately um so yeah it's like this mm. You're, you're the middle of the Venn diagram. You're, you're That's the way I'm I, I, don't, I, I don't know that many people would describe us as a mediator. <laughs> they find us a little bit sharp. Yeah. <laughs> But you kind of need that, like, guidance or the direct voice. Well, we're, we're very help. clear that the expertise we bring into the space mm. yeah. primarily yeah. is the lived experience yeah. perspective. Yeah. Now, many of us have professional qualifications and backgrounds that, of course, augment that. Yeah. But the le- the primary lens that we're using is that lived experience. Yeah. 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 And, and we value yeah. that and yeah. believe that that is critical, yeah. um, you know, as many places around the world do. So it's mm. this is not, a, you know, we... Moving on kind of from that a little bit from the advocacy is the idea of co-design and co-production, which are words that are increasingly bandied around again mm. with meaning different things in different circumstances. But we would certainly see co-design as, you know, a, a, a tool or a process that can be used to equitably and meaningfully bring people into decision making mm. about decisions yeah. that are more likely going to affect their lives than anyone yeah. else's. Mm. So this is it's the end. citizen empowerment. Yeah, yeah, these are the end mm. users having input into mm. the design of a program or a policy. Yeah, totally. yeah. it just makes so much sense. Yeah, it really should be done for for almost anything. Yeah. I feel. and the yeah. evidence is there. Yeah, yeah the yeah, evidence right. is there. Um, and I have to say, um, you know, I don't work for the Mental Health Commission, um, but in terms of a government department, they are a department that has embraced that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have been involved in, in co-chairing the development of their statewide framework of engagement. Um, but, you know, and that was done in a co-designed way, like integrity of process was maintained. And it is a very fit for purpose document, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that now filters down. And so... You know, for example, you so, so I'm always interested in seeing, you know, where the kind of string starts from in grassroots and where it can end up strategically. Mm-hmm. So Mental Health Matters 2 had been involved in a project, the one that you mentioned, Craig, and we had developed a paid participation policy yeah. um, for people with lived experience participating in the project. And it was the first time that a tiered approach, you know, this was the back of an envelope. This is not fancy <laughs> modeling, right? Mm-hmm. So if anyone out there is listening, well, yeah. hopefully there's someone listening, but, you know, my friends at least will yeah, be listening. Yeah. Um, but... Um, you know, you'd, it doesn't have to start with this grand document. It was like, well, what would be fair here? You know, using our value system, what would be fair? Okay, well, you know, some people are just coming into the system, so you want to pay them, you know, and the going rate at that time and still is in health and um, is $35 an hour, right? So it was $30 or $25 at that stage. And we're like, but if you have to, you know, for me to go to, you know, a particular meeting in the city, it's 45 minute drive in, mm. 45 minute drive mm-hmm. out, mm-hmm. parking, etc. So like, and I'm going to get paid $25 for that hour. No. Like, that's not equity. No. When everyone else is, you know, around the table salaried. That's, yeah, that's their business so, time. So yeah. how can yeah. we build equity into this? So yeah. we thought, right, if people are coming in, you know, just for, um, you know, for maybe a 
share of your experience, right? $35 an hour, minimum of three hours. Yep. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, which is absolutely congruent with bringing in a, a worker. A casual yeah. worker would yeah. get absolutely. the same minimum absolutely. shift. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, and there was lots of play around, well, this isn't payment. It's like, well, it's acknowledgement. And actually, you know, money's pretty meaningful, particularly when you don't have it, you mm -hmm. know. The, the you know, being poor is actually very exhausting in mm. trying to find ways to fill those gaps. And then the next tier was we, we thought, right, well, we know there are people in the lived experience communities who are, you know, who know this stuff, who can not only work well within a system, but across systems, which is actually missing in the system, mm -hmm. right? So often lived experience bring that expertise yeah. because people who work in health know health, but they don't know justice so they may not know child protection whereas the people family members who and the individuals who navigate those systems get to know the doors and the you know the fire escapes pretty quickly yeah. um and so we said right there's another tier here then as an advisor so you come in you sit in this some of these more strategic committees and that's 70 dollars an hour you know that seems and that was based on a particular rationale and minimum yeah. of three hours mm -hmm. and then the third tier is as a consultant mm -hmm. so if you're being brought in to do a piece of work that requires your expertise like any other you negotiate that yeah. with yep. the entity and so we trialed that in the project that we did and we found it worked really well and one of one of the elements and we didn't research it there's no hard data on this yeah. but anecdotally what we noticed was people stayed and then of course because they stayed because they could as one person said to me i can now make a meaningful decision between taking an extra casual shift or being involved in this meeting and so then they built their capacity because they were in more of the conversation and mm -hmm. contributed more. So, and then, you know, the um, Mental Health Commission used the same framework, that mm. tiered approach, and it works really well. And they mm -hmm. are, you know, they have been demonstrably committed to making sure that lived experience voices are in, you know, not just the little decisions, mm -hmm. but the big decisions too. Yeah. And so there are examples of, this working successfully in our system yeah you know? yeah i mean I've, I've come up against barriers at the university for getting uh consumers involved in mm. um you know whether it's running results past them and seeing what their thoughts are before they we'd submit for publication just to get their perspective on what they mm. might mean interpreting results and just even um trying to offer them something like through the university's accounting department we have to get them to sign oh, a casual contract so and all this sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. And so there's got to be a better way yeah. that, he, that we can make that happen. So I'll definitely yeah. be um, bending your ear about that afterwards. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I was reminded there was a, a very wonderful disability advocate um, who talked to Kenna wrote a song about being paid in morning teas and fruit platters, mm. <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. So you want to talk yeah. about being patronised. Well, it's usually yeah. like Coles yeah. vouchers or, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Like, and, yeah. and, of course, people yeah. can choose. For some people, it, they might not want to, for a whole range of reasons, take payment. But it's actually mm. having the choice, mm. you know. Isn't that what empowerment's about? Right. Having exactly. the choice. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So, and so we would, um, just going back to that, somewhat mischievously mm. at times, say, the people say, when we'll have the next meeting, we'll say, well, we can do Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. Because like it's not we're not in our work time. So yeah. and people yeah. go, what do you mean Saturday morning? It's like oh you're here during work time, so you're being paid to do this. Right. All right, you know. So yeah. it sounds a bit mm. snarky, but it's actually just opening people's yeah. awareness because yeah. if you've never thought going, about Hang it, on, wait exactly. A minute, yeah. yeah, yeah. This is and the same as your weekend, me yeah. being here right That's now. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And and so people think, oh, I wouldn't give up my time to do that. And it's like, mm. well, I'm giving up my time to do that today. So we need some acknowledgement of that. And money yeah. isn't everything, no. but it certainly can make life a lot easier 
mm. than when you don't have it. I mean, let's just be real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's absolutely. right. Mm. Yeah. So I wanted to pivot now to uh, probably the central policy document in this area, which I'm not sure if you guys were involved in the um, development of, which was the Mental Health Act. Mm-hmm. Was that 2016 <laughs> that that was 2014. 2014. 2014 was that sounds 2014. like a voice that knows. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting confused with the Public Health Act. Yeah, yeah so yeah. the Mental Health Act 2014. Mm. So was Mental Health Matters 2 consulted at all or, or widely? Well, I have to say there was really good consultation done for the development of the Mental Health Act and um, under the previous government. And it, um, it came at a time, so the review of that piece of legislation came at a time when there was much more contemporary conversation happening globally mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. people's rights in mm-hmm. mental health and psychiatric detention. And of course... You know, being reminded that mental the Mental Health Act is about the, you know, it kind of um, gives advice to, that's absolutely not the right legal term, but it, you know, looks at the detention, the involuntary detention yeah. and mm-hmm. treatment of people. And that isn't just in a hospital setting. That could be someone on a community treatment order in the community. And often people don't realise that, that same act applies there. Mm-hmm. So it also, as well as providing the um, author the authorizations for doing that, it also more importantly, well, as importantly, more importantly, <laughs> provides the protections and safeguards for people yeah. who've had... If you're going to take someone's liberty away from them, um, you know, in a civil situation, you you've, have to protect you've them. got to protect them mm. and you've got to protect the decision-making process that actually comes to that. And we've seen, you know, years ago about how people could languish in places where those protections and advocacy wasn't funded properly mm. in order to... And, and options weren't actually available. Mm. Other yeah. options weren't available. But um, so, yes, we were... We were quite vocal because actually we have really good experience of being, you know, involved in that particular space. Mm-hmm. And also that space where drugs and alcohol meet uh, acute um, and ongoing mental distress. And and often the, the lack of um, useful response there led people into the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. So we were really clear that actually this act needed review and it needed a fairly major and it is it's a completely different act and i mean just to give you an example you know the 96 act which was the prevailing act um doesn't even mention family or carer it's not even defined in the act right because clearly you know if you're dealing with people who have you know a gene you know deficiency or a chemical imbalance well why do you need to talk to families so the whole understanding of mental health has also shifted into understanding and we've certainly seen this i think greater community understanding through covid that you know if you lose your job if your relationship breaks up if you have a tragic loss in your life if you are alienated and isolated from meaningful social connection Mm. your mental health will suffer (laughs) you know we've totally seen that in the broader community and so um so yes we were we were very involved in that. I think one of my more um, heart-stopping moments in that was I was invited to be um, the family carer representative on 
what was called the expert reference group. <laughs> oh, expert. <laughs> oh, and I absolutely did not. I really didn't. It was inc- it was actually a really stressful time because I felt this enormous burden of responsibility mm-hmm. to kind of get it right, mm-hmm. and also feeling like I was in a you know. Years ago, I had moved to Austria and lived there for a while, and I was speaking. And I was in a foreign land where I didn't understand the language. But the one thing I held on to through that was I thought, I may not know your language, I may not know the legal language, and I may not know the, you know, the psychiatric language, but boy, do I know the impact. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm going to keep bringing to this table. Yeah. And not only the impact, because I think as an advocate, you have a responsibility to not just keep talking about the problems, because frankly, it just sounds whiny and whingy, but you also have to bring the solution mm-hmm. and say, like, we need something that will set up this scenario and dismantle that scenario. And I felt that, you know, from conversations with colleagues and, you know, the increase in Mental Health Matters 2 community, that I absolutely had access to that. Mm -hmm. And and a diversity of experience, because it's always really important that these things, particularly at that level, are not just being you know, shown through one one person's lens, um, because that can be, you know, I don't need to talk to two researchers about the bias involved in that. (laughs) But, you know, so I was lucky I was tapped into a community of people for whom this was an all too regular occurrence. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so the, um, you know, there was a lot of um, consultation done around the act. Of course, when you go to transform anything, power comes up. Um, and it was really interesting to see how that happened. You know, there, you know, there's an old adage, and I don't know who I can ascribe it to, that you know, power isn't given; it's taken. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there was increasing strident uh, consumer and family voice around the need to change this. <clears throat> I think there was some concern, um, perhaps in some clinical settings, around how that could be done. And and I, that is not at all to to cast aspersions on frontline clinicians. I know many frontline clinicians and people in management who do magnificent jobs in the face of systems that frankly don't work. You yeah. know, they're working against the system often yeah. mm-hmm. or trying to find their workarounds in the system to that do it. Course, yeah. um, so, but, you know, they're under as much pressure in the system often as the people, ex- well, not not as much, but in a different way as the yeah. people who are trying to navigate the system. So, um, so yes, we were involved. We wrote a submission. And again, that was a learning, you know, because when I, you know, when, when things would come out, you know, a submission is required for this lofty sounding thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, I suppose, and I'm tertiary educated and I still feel like, oh, that's for lawyers. That's for people oh, who really yeah. know, you know, they, they're the people who write submissions. Whereas Sandy Bolter had told us matter of factly a submission can be an email, you know, it can be a paragraph, it can be, right, you just need to make sure that you don't forget this, or this is really important. And so she, you know, the power of education mm. is, you know, always front and yeah, centre. Yeah, I didn't know that. Mm. Yeah. 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 yeah, very yeah. good. And yeah. sometimes submissions are made orally, where yeah. Yeah. that's the best way for the person to communicate. It. That's so, right. But people don't, a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, because yeah, it, it feels so formal. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. And forbidding. Yeah. So it's like, unless it's you've going got to be these pass- if you do passports. It, yeah. Yeah. I, I sat down with Ron Alexander with the Methamphetamine Action Task Force mm. that he was leading and a couple of his advisors, or mm. I guess they were Department of Premier and Cabinet Advisors or something, mm. literally just had a, a one-hour conversation and that was 
that was treated as a submission. Right. Mm. Yeah. And often you can ask for your submission to be confidential. You know, mm. there are different levels of permissions that you can give as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, or you can, you know, have the content de-identified but shared. You know, mm. usually with, with um, some of those processes, you, there are options as well, which are really important. So for me, that's about citizen engagement. So yeah. we've got to dismantle some of this stuff around, you know, submissions are very lofty. Yeah. You know, there's a couple of submissions out at the moment, for example, and depending on when this goes to air, of course, mm. um, you know, um, the people are looking for advice. And one mm. of it is into the model of care for um, a youth a, a, a unit for young people experiencing mental distress, drug and alcohol use, and homelessness. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think it's really important to hear from young people. <laughs> yeah. you know, so I think they might be able to say and a few that things. Also be sometimes like one of the hardest groups to totally to talk about. Totally, and yeah. actually get their opinions right. too. And yeah. and sometimes your way into that group is through peers. You know, mm-hmm. maybe peers who who have kind of come through, who might be on that older end. You know, the sixteen mm-hmm. to twenty four. Yeah. You know, they might not be in the sixteen. You, you know, or you can get some very savvy 16-year-olds yeah. in my yeah. experience. And so, you know, so, yeah, so we did a submission. And, um, of course, because we had started, so I am answering the question, Craig. I promise. <laughs> yeah. um, because we had started with the start court, so many things fell out of that. One is, one was legislation. Now, none of us are lawyers, right? So, um, so taking on legislation is kind of a bit... Um, scary. scary yeah and forbidding when you're when you're a non-lawyer and i had worked with legislation before but it hadn't actually had to advocate or argue it mm. and so again we were really lucky that the, you know sandy bolter you know and the community education that was available through the mental health law center helped us learn that you know so this was something we could learn Mm-hmm. And and again, it wasn't the exclusive propriety of a group of people. And sometimes you have to nudge your way in and find the right person that will open the door. Sometimes you have to get in the back door and then present yourself in the in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had from from that um, advocacy around the Stark Court, we had started to advocate for the review of the Criminal Law Mentally Impaired Accused Act, which continues to be a heinous piece of legislation <laughs> yeah. in the yeah. state of which we should all be utterly ashamed. Yeah. Okay. It is just dreadful, but I'll hold that thought for maybe further down the track. Mm-hmm. Um, but that gave us some confidence because that's actually a really small piece of legislation, um, powerful in its impact, but short in terms of reading it. And then the Mental Health Act was, wasn't much bigger than that. But again, this, this piece of law that allows people to be locked up and treated mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. against your will yeah you know so you've got to really make sure that you know what you're doing there and that you have confidence in the authorities who are safeguarding around that so and i suppose one of the things that uh, we gave and there was sympathy across the board for it was the issue of discharge yeah so that just seemed to come up and up and you know people people with alcohol and with known alcohol and other drug issues would be sent in a taxi to you know our home <laughs> or their home, they might be living with family, with mm. a bag of drugs. And mm-hmm. you just think, recipe for disaster. Mm. You know, this is, this, how could this be a therapeutic Doesn't make sense. intervention? Yeah. You know? yeah. And so, so treatment support and discharge plan was a really important part of or because we thought if we could just get that bit sorted, then we'd also deal with some other, um, well, it would help to mitigate some of the tragedies that were occurring yep. in people's lives. That still are. And that still are. And so I have to say that, you know, again, with my advocate hat on, you know, that's a that's an area in the act that we've kept a really close eye on. And again, you know, find allies who 
who actually know what they're doing in this space, and one of those allies in this space is the Mental Health Advocacy Service, who is the statutory advocacy group within the Act. And in 2017, they actually um, held an inquiry and found the outcome of that inquiry into treatment support and discharge planning. And the outcome of that inquiry was that not one health service was compliant with the law. Okay. Now, now, just well, let's, well, let's well, linger well, there for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's say we all decide that red lights don't really suit me when I'm in a rush. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to break that law. Yeah. Well, there's a definite consequence for, for yeah. doing that. Okay. Yeah. And there are some, you know... <laughs> there are some remedies and they get worse the more you do it. Yep. Mm. Clearly outlined, very transparent in the Road Traffic Act, right? And it's there for community safety. Mm. But yet, you know, years into a new act, we have we have services yep. that so you can hear the indignation in my voice here. <laughs> um because it doesn't give good outcomes. Yeah. Yep. It doesn't give good outcomes and we're still hearing that in our community. Yeah. So we fed so we continued. We held the Mental Health Act as one of kind of our main bodies of work, if you like. And we also participated in the two year post implementation review of the Act, which was a narrow scope, um, really to see the purpose of that particular review as I understand is really to understand how the implementation of the act may have affected other business areas mm-hmm. and um, and so we, we you know uh, the people who were doing that review very kindly came you know they said you know what do you think and we said come come to us <laughs> and we will tell you what we think you know and to their credit they did and it's you know I often I take my hat off to people who are prepared to do that because that's not an easy thing to do mm. because you kind of I think might sometimes feel that you're coming into the town square and the pillory is there yeah. and the rotten egg yeah, basket is there the and the tomatoes, tomatoes are, you, are there yeah. and you know <laughs> you're just going to end up there and it actually wasn't your fault right mm. so so I appreciate people who can just take a deep breath and hold that space Yep. for people to be able to tell their truth and mm-hmm. then you know record that faithfully and make sure that that's heard in the right places that's an absolute gift mm. to people with lived and living experience and so they came and they did that and they said you know some of this we can't you know it's not part of this review but the statutory review will be coming up and the statutory review is happening this year okay. so i would really encourage anyone out there who you know and there will be consultations i don't think it's been released yet what exactly they're going to look like but mm-hmm. you know the process is underway so yeah. um so get involved have mm-hmm. your voice heard um mm-hmm. so what we did with that um piece of information in terms of when we were bringing together lived you know the lived experience of family members still contacting us or individuals saying you know I've been told I'm being discharged tomorrow and I actually don't have anywhere to live or I've got a night at the backpackers. Um, and we would refer people on because obviously we don't have somewhere with lots of beds. But if you have a known drug and alcohol use and if you have a criminal history, the chances of you getting one of those beds um, in, a, wow. in a reasonably <coughs> decent mm. place is very, very minimal at this point because yep. of the shortage. And so then we had the inquiry so we then said, well, we can't actually change the system, right? <laughs> We're not that naive anymore. Yeah. Um, but what we can do is we can empower family members to ask different questions. Mm-hmm. And so we developed, we got a small grant from a fabulous group called Connect Groups, which is the peak body for peer and self-help support groups in WA. And uh, we developed some resources co-designed with family members, very narrow 
scope family members of people who'd been in involuntary detention and again not a group that you can often access yeah. and not a group that feels that their voice is well heard so we co-designed some resources they're available for free download on mentalhealthmatters2.com.au <laughs> Very um, and and what those resources did was they gave people language and understanding so we we dismantled not the act, because it's 200 odd pages, but mm. the treatment support and discharge plan of it and said, this is what the act page looks like. This is what a section means. This is what this language means. And we just did what had been done with us, really, yeah. earlier in the piece. And said, this is how you read a piece of law, mm. you know, because we were really lucky to have that, you know, um, demystified. Mm. And... And so a great outcome from that was one person shared a, a very changed experience and, and she had a long history of, you know, going into meetings, trying to negotiate both for her um, loved one's um, best interests and as, you know, and she had full permission to do that. And um, and that was is generally where the focus is. The focus isn't actually on what's happening with the family. Mm. And, but sometimes people think, they work with family because the family member happens to be in the room. So that's a really big distinction. They're often there as the advocate for the individual, mm. yeah, not as the advocate for the family. And so she said the difference in her walking in, feeling distressed, telling her story, you know, carrying that massive um, load in and coming out feeling like, what happened there? And I have a headache now. Yeah. Um, and did anything really change? To walking in saying, you know, because part of the resources around how do you prepare for the meeting? And it's not about setting up yourself to be an antagonist it's about being prepared mm. so you get the outcome like any good business meeting you, know, you get the outcome that you want need and if there are barriers you work together to work those out and so she said you know walking in being able to say you know what i would like to discuss today as previously indicated to you is the treatment support and discharge plan which i understand should have started the minute this person was admitted. And as you know, under Section 188 of the Act, I have a right to be involved in this discussion yeah. and then watch the jaws drop mm -hmm. around the table. Yeah. Because that is a really different conversation. And yeah. she felt mightily empowered in being able to feel confident that she knew what she was talking about mm -hmm. and also felt that she was actually educating some new registrars mm -hmm. and some new, you know, people who just hadn't, yeah. Looked at Section 180 of the Act and frankly had no idea the, what it yeah, said. They've yeah. never had any reason yeah. to because yeah. they probably are unaware of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And so yeah. she was able to hand them the resource and say, well, you know, if you're not sure what it is, again, it's not about being, you know, antagonistic. Yeah, pointing a finger. Pointing a yeah, finger and saying, yeah. you're wrong, I'm right. I mean, that doesn't get anybody anywhere. But yeah. saying, here it is. Here is the information, yeah. just in case you're wondering yeah. the authority that I'm using, here it is. And that was the resource we developed. Yeah. yeah. And I think it opens people's eyes as to why that's there as well. Mm. It's obviously there to benefit both the clinician and the, the patient. Absolutely. You know, yeah. And the forward. evidence, you know, if we come back to evidence, the evidence shows that where you, you know, outside of situations where there is violence and neglect, um, where you involved the people around a person, whether that's their family, by blood, by kinship, by acceptance, you mm -hmm. know, whatever their definition the family is. Family law definition. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, then you will get a better outcome. Mm -hmm. mm. Family inclusive practice. There's a very interesting parallel that I've just thought of. So my area, um, because you don't know, uh, I look at atrial fibrillation and heart failure hospitalizations and what mm -hmm. happens to them after hospital. Yeah. Um, obviously, these are physical diseases and what you're talking about is, is mental diseases mm -hmm. and there's usually quite a distinct um, opinion about the two different types. But um, it's, it's so interesting to me that 
there hasn't been something that happens after discharge for so long for these people and they just get cast back out into society. Whereas for physical diseases, um, the one I'm thinking of is heart failure. Something that I've been looking at is this multidisciplinary team that looks after them, follows them up for two weeks, gives them phone calls, visits their home, asks them how they're doing, asks them whether they have any questions, all this kind of stuff about what they're going through. And they have a team ready available to empower the patient mm. to learn about their disease and to learn more about it. And it just seems to me that it shouldn't just be for physical diseases. It shouldn't just be for heart failure. It shouldn't just be for progression of Alzheimer's and all that kind mm. of stuff. Mm. And people forget that the same thing can be applied to pretty much anything in our society. So having that team of people, having that understanding just seems to be so important so mm. people know what they can do. Mm. Yeah, it's just like there was an eye-open moment for me of just like the, the parallels between it. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think the, the exchange of information for me is about yeah. the practitioner listening and learning from the person yeah. as to what works for them. Mm. So it's the only way that we learn. Like yeah, absolutely. You but you have to be willing. Yeah. You do, but you have to be willing mm. to acknowledge that there is value in that expertise. Yeah. So it's not about this professional dominance of mm. knowledge and expertise and, and, you know, people being the, you know, the kind of empty vessels into which this magnificent, you know, expertise will flow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then their life, well, then the magic wand appears and then their life will change, <laughs> right? You know? yeah. I remember that in education, you yeah. know, the empty yeah. vessel idea, that, you know, yeah. students are in the classroom. It's like, no, no, no. You know, if, you, you know, this person will help you learn how to do your job better, better yeah. Yeah. if you really listen in deeply. And it might, it might provoke some difficult thinking and it might nudge some things that you've been taught mm -hmm. um you it know might also your make you realize that you're doing the wrong thing and like, it might do that <laughs> and it might make you realize somebody else and the team's not quite doing the right thing and how do you manage that one but you know yeah. these are difficult conversations but we're all adults yeah you mm. know and it's about the best outcomes. I think we have to keep the end in mind. Mm. What's the best possible outcome here? And how do you empower people in a, mm. in a contemporary society and community um, so that you hear their voice? And, and how do you, um, I, I say this for myself as well, like it's a continuing reflective question. How do I listen in here? How do I stop talking? Which is quite <laughs> ironic given you know that I'm continuing to talk in the middle of this podcast. But you know, when I'm working you know, or, or come to meet people who I, whose culture I don't know anything about, mm -hmm. who's, uh, you know, who um, who may be transitioning transgender. You know, I, I mean, I haven't had that experience. That's you can't not, tell them what they feel. Absolutely. Yeah. I need to shut up and listen. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and learn. Yeah. And then see how that can actually mm. improve my response. That's my responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and do whatever I can do to make sure that that voice is heard in conversations. And, and I think as an ally, you know, again, trying to dismantle this oppositional thinking about us and them. It's like, what can you do if you're in the system? Well, you know, you know the doors. You, can, you have the swipe card. Yeah. You can actually mm. bring people in. You can invite people in. You can demystify what the inside of that tower because it often feels like an ivory tower. When you look at it from the outside, it's impenetrable. Mm -hmm. We won't even start on prisons. <laughs> but, you know, just yeah. even an office block yeah. can, mm -hmm. you know, can look like oh, that. Yeah. You know, or do you meet them there? Or do you meet them in a cafe? Or do you meet mm -hmm. them under the tree in the park? Like, mm -hmm. where's the most, you know, where's the best place to have this conversation? So it is really about, and, and it's challenging because, mm -hmm. you know, but 
that's where you learn from. You yeah. don't learn from comfort. That's right. You know, yeah. when I was delivering and working with some folk yesterday about advocacy, you know what I'm saying? Today is about being uncomfortable. You know, so let me just be really clear. If you feel uncomfortable, fantastic, you're in mm. the learning space. Mm. If you're sitting here thinking, I know this all, you're not listening. Mm. You know, you're really not listening to not me, but to the people around you. Yep. Um, and you're missing an opportunity. So, yeah. 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 Getting things wrong or doing them badly is a part of mm. doing them well. That's yep. right. You know? If you reflect. If you there. reflect, yeah. You and that, that counts for systems too. Yeah. So it counts for individual practitioners, but also systems having a willingness to look at some stuff that happens. And I think that sort of circles back to the talking about the public service and long-term public servants. Mm. If they're not in those positions long-term, then that continuity gets broken yeah. and it gets reset and restarted. Yeah, and true. Those learnings get lost when those people leave. Yeah, you know, so, that's right. Yeah, it's interesting. So we've had a pretty good conversation. So yeah. <laughs> I, th I thought we might just finish. Obviously, you've got a, many years of experience in this space now. So I just mm. wanted to get your reflections on maybe some of the, the gaps and the priorities in the mental health area. Um, things, you know, maybe a couple of key things that you think need to be addressed. Yeah. Obviously, works in progress, that sort of thing. Yeah, listen, I think I'll start. I, I won't start with the gaps, Craig. I'll start okay. with the strengths. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, because I think, you know, for all its fault, the Mental Health Act actually does give us the legislative base from which to build better responses there. So we do have that legislative base there in place. We do have, um, we do have in principle support, well, actually publicly stated support from the current government to review the criminal law, Mentally Impaired Accused Act. So I'm really looking forward mm -hmm. <laughs> to seeing when that's going to happen. And that is, you know, that is an urgent case. And for people who don't understand the significance of that particular piece of legislation, it's for, it's the law that comes into place when people who are deemed unfit to stand trial or, mm -hmm. you know, of unsound mind um, in relation to the, alleged offence. Can I just ask, was that, did they go as far as making that an election commitment or not? It was a first year election commitment okay, by Mr McGowan. But it hasn't been done yet? But it hasn't been done yet. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. So, um, given the likely outcome <laughs> of the next state election, <laughs> yeah. um, we are very much looking forward. And I understand mm -hmm. that work is, is happening in the background mm -hmm. to make that happen, but when we now need to really um, move that forward. We've, we're way behind in that space. And it's at utter odds with the government's kind of recovery-focused stance in mental health. So, it's... it's uh, it's a disparate position there yeah, that they yeah. hold. Inconsistent. Yeah, yeah. So, um, mm. so, for example, in the Mental Health Act, again, you know, there's greater access to advocacy um, through the Mental Health Advocacy Service. Um, we are, you know, and you were talking about discharge there, Courtney. There are now a couple of projects where peer workers are involved mm. with people leaving hospital. There's just one announced at Fiona Stanley a couple of weeks ago that there will be peer workers. So we're beginning to see the development of a peer workforce. Um, well, that's probably a little bit... Um, there, there are peer workers in Western Australia, but we just don't have it in a workforce sufficiently yeah. across the board in lots of different settings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there are some national involved in some national work around developing national guidelines, which I think will be really helpful in that space to accelerate that work. And the reason that that is so important is that embeds lived experience voices in systems and services and allows that voice to be heard really well. So I think, you know, there are a number of strengths. We are absolutely seeing much more of a commitment to 
seeing mental health through the social determinants model, Mm -hmm. moving away from just this health-oriented and biomedical narrow focus, um, which is really needed because we need to, you know, you can't talk about mental health and not talk about housing. Yeah, doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, we, we are seeing some some strengths come in the system. Some of the gaps continue to be, well, and again, you know, my lens is the pointy end. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not seeing shift. We're seeing massive imprisonment of people. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that people with mental distress are, you know, disproportionately represented in prison populations. Um, and we know that if you go into prison, you're likely going to come out with a mental health condition if you haven't had one before you went in. So, um, so you know the big kind of elephant in the room for me in the mental health space are prisons mm-hmm. because they are the largest and I had a previous commissioner say this to me corrective services commissioner you know I run um, the it was James McMahon at the time you know mm-hmm. I run the um, largest mental health institutions in the state yeah. Yeah. and it's like well That's okay right. so yeah. if you acknowledge that mm then what are we doing about that? Where's the treatment? Where's the treatment? Where's the support? How are we stopping people getting there? How are we making sure that when they come out, they're coming out safely? We know the periods in weeks after someone being released from prison, massive increase in risk for overdose. Yeah, death. Um, And, you know, if if you're coming out to a landscape where you're homeless or you're in really transient housing and you've been disconnected from your family and and I know I know there isn't a lot of sympathy in the public arena for prisoners I mm-hmm. get that but you know prisoners are people yeah. and prisons are part of our community mm. and we talk about prisons as though they were somehow on another planet they are in our community and we have people who work in those who are you know who are yeah. members of our community so so we need to really start. I think that for me is the biggest gap, and the just, second gap aligned. Just to in there, yeah, I, absolutely. I would, have, I would have been tempted when the former commissioner said that to you about prisons being the biggest mental yeah. health institutions to say. <laughs> so that's really interesting. And how are you qualified to run those institutions? Yeah. What's your experience mm-hmm. as a? He was a, an army officer yeah. or something, right? Yeah. So if oh, if he yeah. if he can come to that conclusion, why are they not putting somebody with that relevant experience? Yeah in charge of that, knowing that that's the profile of the people that they're trying to look after. And also, why aren't they trying to make it the smallest mental health institute? Because I feel like prisons is not made to look after people with mental health conditions. Well, it's not. It's not. It's completely no. So it should be the smallest one and there yeah. should be a more appropriate yeah. uh, institute <laughs> uh, where they can get treatment. Yeah. <laughs> and for example, I mean, you know, when you talk about gaps, like, for example, the Franklin Centre, which mm. is, you know, the, the psychiatric inpatient, if you like, mm. had 30 beds when it opened 25 years ago mm-hmm. now, uh, when the prison population was about 1,800. It still has 30 beds mm. and the oh, prison population geez. is 7,000. Yeah. Wow. You know, okay. and, and we know that you know, um, the, you know, so, uh, yeah, so, I mean, there's an obvious gap yeah. there and there's a commitment to, you know, having a new Franklin Centre with increased bed numbers in the 10-year plan hasn't even been started yet. No. You know, so, again, these are people who are at that very vulnerable age um, of our community mm-hmm. and we have to keep looking out there. It's really easy and I understand the temptation to do this, to look in the middle and go, but we're doing all of these things really well. And there are things that are being done well. Mm-hmm. But you know those folk over there? Mm-hmm. They're not just dealing with imprisonment. They're dealing with poverty. They're yeah. dealing with racism. They're yeah. dealing with multiple 
Um, I know that the new word yeah. is, you know, yeah. intersectionality. I had to yeah. learn that language. That's right. Um, you know, but just multiple vulnerabilities. Yes. Um, yeah, but compounds. we talk about them yeah. as being complex. So don't even yeah. start me on language. Yeah, right? no, that's fine. Yeah. Um, you like. know, but <laughs> for me, it's multiple unmet needs or multiple vulnerabilities. Mm. These people aren't complex. The systems that provide support mm. to them are complex. Yeah. The people themselves want a safe place to live. Yeah. Yeah. Some money in their pocket, some people around them that they love who love them. Basic human needs. Basic yeah. human needs. That's it's right. not rocket science. Yeah. But seemingly providing the service to them is rocket science. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same people that, that circle through yeah. acute health services, yeah. the justice system, the homelessness mm. space. It's You could throw a blanket over that group and yeah. they, they pretty much move through that. Yeah. That's mm. those systems. Yeah. yeah. So when we talk about, you know, um, you know, good use of taxpayers' dollar. And I don't mean, I mean, there is the absolute human humanistic argument for this, but there's also the economic argument for it, mm. which I think, you know, is uh, is an important argument to be made as well. And, you know, there's lots of evidence. The Centre for Social Impact has done some really great work in this space, as have other researchers, mm. and provided the data. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not like we don't know, um, you know, how a dollar can be spent and where yeah. it's most useful, you know, yeah. justice reinvestment mm-hmm. policies, you know, work. And and they change. It's they're transformational. Yeah. yeah. They change generations. They don't just change this point in time. They create mm. different trajectories in people's lives. Um, so yeah. So uh, I, I'm very conscious. Some people hear me talking about the prison space. They think some some are an apologist. I've been a victim of crime. You know, I've I've felt that rage of wanting. You know absolute justice and vengeance mm. and then thought well actually no i actually fundamentally i want to be safe mm. yeah. so what's the best outcome for community safety yeah. that's the lens i'm using and they're not and the same two they're not the same things they're no. not the same yeah, things yeah. and yeah. i think often as well people in the general community who haven't been touched thankfully who haven't been touched mm. in this space um have still that naive if we bring it back to naive, this naive notion that people go to prison for rehabilitation because mm. we actually say that that's what prisons do but for people with mental distress mm-hmm. who are really vulnerable in those populations the chances of rehabilitation mm. you know rehabilitation isn't available widely as widely as it's needed and and the chances of people with serious mental health issues in that population be able able to access those opportunities is limited and you know i will say that again in the space there is got some good stuff happening but we need to keep investing Mm -hmm. you know the casarina mental health and drug and alcohol um unit in down there at the prison you know that is something that can change people's lives and mm-hmm. trajectories and generations. The one do women's drug and alcohol prison, like great outcomes. No mm. positive drug tests, I think, in two years. Yeah. That's right. unprecedented. Yep. Women coming out, being able to actually, you know, and of course that transition will be really important, but because there is a non-government organization working with the government, mm. you know, that's that soft landing back into the community mm-hmm. yeah. um, and giving people access to groups that they, you know, it's not this big chasm that they have to jump, that they can just gently. People very much underestimate the shock mm-hmm. <laughs> of coming out, you know, particularly if it's in a romance situation where you might get bail on a day and sure you want it, but now you have to come out and, you what know, do you do? what do you yeah. do? Yeah. And the other thing is that end of sentence. Of course, yeah. you're anticipating it and looking forward to it. But, you know, the family may have lots of different opinions, of, you know, may be excited, but nervous, but scared. Yeah. And no one's working with them. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a huge life change. Mm. And mm. I think for any any form of huge life change, there needs to be a good support system. Mm. Yeah. yeah. 
And I'm really interested in having, you know, in having people for any of us to take responsibility for our actions, but actually being given the resources and supports to be able to do that. And I think if you, you know, you just break down, again, coming back to language, that word responsibility, it's about people's ability to respond. Mm. Mm. So are we building the capacity, not just in the individual, but in the system that supports them and can walk alongside them to do that. Mm. And and if we're spitting people out, I think the churn rate for prisons in WA is about fourteen or 15,000 a year. Right. So we're churning people out to homelessness, mm-hmm. to, you know, a disconnected, yeah. you know, family systems, networks, unemployment. What outcome are we expecting? Oh, yeah. look at that. Look at that recidivism rate. Fancy that. Mm. Yeah. It's not, it's not news, is it? It's not it's, news. Yeah. It's not news. And it's very mm. old news and it's very tired news at this point. Mm. And it disproportionately affects some, you know, sections of our community, such as Aboriginal people yeah. and communities. Yeah. So it, that effect is totally disproportionate. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's been a fascinating chat, Margaret. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, could, we could actually go on for a few hours. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> We uh, best up now. Yeah. 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 Don't um, get me started about prison. <laughs> if, if people listening want to get in touch with you, what's the best way of finding sure. you? Sure. Email is probably the easiest. Yeah. Um, so our email address is mentalhealthmatters2 with the number 2 at gmail.com. We have a web page. It's really basic. Okay, so I'll just issue the warning first mm-hmm. because it has to be um, hosted and run by non-tech people. So mm. anyone out there techie who wants to do some <laughs> volunteer work, we welcome you. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so those are the two best ways to get in touch okay. with us. Yeah, Fantastic. Mm. Well, thanks very much for your yeah, time today. Thank you. Oh, no, yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Now let's enjoy some vegan gluten-free yes. yeah. low-fat brownies. Okay. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much. Thank you. There you have it. That was our chat with Margaret Doherty from Mental Health Matters 2. It was just, it was so interesting, all of her insights, um, particularly about like the Mental Health Act and all that kind of thing. It was just, it's a long conversation, obviously, but necessary, I mm. feel. A very necessary conversation for us to have, at least yeah. recorded. Yeah. And I, I think people listening will all know somebody who's had a, a mental health condition, uh, maybe not to the point where they've ended up in prison or in, in the ED or anything, but... It is just so prevalent. It is, yeah. you know, and M- Margaret's work does focus on what she calls the pointy end, so people with, you know, quite serious mental illness that, that come to some harm or, or harm others. Mm. Um, but, yeah, obviously it's a, it's a broader system and, you know, the focus probably needs to be a bit more on prevention and manage, managing things yeah. before they get too bad. But that's um, where we can learn. Yeah. Yeah, we can learn how they get to that position and, and, and help others yeah. through those stories. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about what some of the work that Margaret and her, her group do is that they look to educate people on how to work within the current system. Yeah. The current system does have some strengths and does make things possible for mm-hmm. people, um, but it's just navigating through you know, what's available and what yeah. help you can get and how to use the legislation to your advantage. Uh, so that, that was a really fascinating part of our talk, I thought. Yeah, so we definitely a- appreciate her time um, allowing us to come into her lovely home and quiz her about all of her knowledge. Um, yeah, we very much appreciate her time for this conversation. It's just, it was so fascinating. Yeah, and as usual, people can contact us at... Oh, no, I haven't done this for like <laughs> two months. Um, uh, meaning of health at 
Outlook.com. That's right. Yep. yep excellent. And then um, we have our Twitter at health means what. So give us a follow, tweet us, do uh, contact us in however, whatever way you want. And um, we do look forward to hearing about comments and feedback and any ideas you want us to talk about. Like, please let us know. It'd be yeah. awesome. Fantastic. And thanks very much for listening. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. <laughs>